Father in heaven, I want to invite your Holy Spirit to be here as we uh, share our experience. I want to ask that we will be benefited in understanding your will. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Imagine probably everybody knows who I am, uh, Byron Smith and uh, my wife Janice. And I'm going to share just a brief history of our farm. And, um, and as it says there, the journey that we have taken in our farm to where we are, particularly as it relates to growing practices like organic and veganic. Um, we are Sunny Zona Family Farms. And uh, in 1996, <clears throat> we moved to Arizona from northern British Columbia, Canada, and we were, we were uh, doing some farming up there, but I was connected with a, a uh, self-supporting school in Canada, Fairhaven Academy, and uh, we bought 320 acres of bare farmland. There was nothing there. It was so flat you could, you could uh, calibrate a level on it. It was just flatland. Hadn't had anything grown on it for some years and we started putting together our farm there and uh, all told we've been growing for about 30 years and I think it's important because it's a family farm, that's my excuse anyway, to um, introduce the rest of our family. Uh, my youngest daughter is here. Um, she looks similar to in that picture, even though it was taken a few years ago. And um, at that point, we had only one granddaughter. Now we have five granddaughters and a grandson. <coughs> that's um, my children and their two spouses. And it wouldn't be appropriate to have a farm without also putting a picture with a tractor in there, right? Um, we began as a conventional hydroponic growing operation back then. We were growing hothouse cucumbers and um, we were not growing in those beds there, but um, uh, we were growing cucumbers and the the uh, series of events that happened to us led us eventually to switch to tomatoes. We grew tomatoes starting in 2002 until currently, but uh, in 2003, we began transitioning to local marketing. We believed that um, that, was, that was more interesting to us, I guess. Um, we had been doing wholesale up to that exclusively, and um, um, we just didn't find it very fulfilling to only call up brokers, these faceless entities that um, even though they were nice people, you know, it's, it's um, kind of a, a um, crass business that they deal with. And so we started meeting with some local chefs and uh, started selling to Whole Foods. And that's my wife and I there in one of the stores. 
and they began promoting our product. Whole Foods is our largest customer by a long, large amount. And I was just looking at this picture as I was putting this slideshow together and I was looking at those prices and it was like, um, those were the days. Um, we had a preferred relationship with them. That meant they gave us preferential pricing. And um, so it was a, a very, very good financial arrangement for us. It's much more competitive now and uh, they don't sell tomatoes for that much and they don't give us the same percentage either. But um, we also developed um, relationships with a number of high-end chefs. These are a team of chefs from Four Seasons Resort in uh, Scottsdale and they drove uh, four hours out to the farm to meet with us and um, we entertained uh, some of, including them, we entertained um, some of our customers on our farm with uh, dinners and uh, we started getting into more diverse products. Uh, you can see here we did a, we developed an heirloom cherry medley and um, we started selling it to some wholesalers and it wasn't long before uh, that idea caught on and everybody else in Mexico was doing the same thing. Um, we specialized for several years in heirloom tomatoes. We did, um, we did very, very well with heirloom tomatoes until um, 2008, I believe it was, when um, they got tomato mosaic virus. The newer varieties of tomatoes are totally resistant to tomato mosaic virus. And there is no way at that point anyway, of um, preventing tomato mosaic virus. Once it's there, um, it's basically a death sentence for that crop because the production drops remarkably and there's no treatment. We worked with a specialist from University of Arizona and uh, you spray milk on the plants. If you touch them, that's how it spreads. Well, you can't grow a tomato crop without touching it, right? And so we, we, had, um, we had to change that. But we also developed about the same time as part of our effort in doing uh, local, we started doing microgreens and uh, got to be a, a, a pretty good player in that business. And uh, we did a, a specialized heirloom lettuce mix, an amazing eating quality. Um, and uh, I'm going to kind of introduce this part even though it actually in our story to organic we didn't actually do the field crops until after we had become organic but just in terms of giving the history of our farm I'm going to put that in there. We began growing outdoor field crops in 2009 that was after we became organic that's when we bought our only tractor and um, in order to uh, control weeds we use uh, polymulch and uh, that's transplanting the, the uh, squash plants in the field. And uh, there's a, there's a uh, mature crop of, I'm going to guess, acorn squash there. Did a lot of winter squash and pumpkins and watermelon. We do a exceptionally fine watermelon, not so much because of our growing practices, although I would like to say that that was the case, but the climate that we live in is, is 
absolutely perfect for watermelon. Hot days, cool nights from the high elevation and uh, builds a lot of sugar in the, uh, in the fruit. And uh, it's just amazing. One of, the, one of the things that was influential in our decision to uh, become organic was um, right there in that picture. We had a, I had as the farmer, um, a great deal of discomfort with the impact of pesticides on our family health. And of course, even a few years back, um, that information has, at least maybe it's because I'm more directly connected with it, but um, the, the studies show that farmer families have like three times the rate, and don't quote me on that figure, because I'm pulling it off the top of my head, I'd have to go back and find out what it actually is, but it's significantly higher rate of Parkinson's disease, for example, and many other diseases that are associated uh, statistically with farmers applying pesticides. So, you know, I was very troubled by the idea that by my vocational choice, I was going to be impacting my children, my grandchildren, and particularly my ability to enjoy them because of how it might impact my health. And health has always been a very important thing to me. So, so um, about the same time, um, we had three things that, that happened. The one was my concern about pesticides. Secondly, we decided that we were going to um, start burning biomass fuel pecan shells in particular, and um, even though we're in Arizona, we actually use more natural gas per acre than they do in, in southern British Columbia. And uh, that's because the nights are so cold because of the elevation we're at and the, um, and the big temperature swings that we get as a result of that. And uh, so we had actually we had actually um, decided to, uh, to do this, and uh, we thought that we needed to actually pelletize the pecan shell in order to burn it. And so we actually set up a, what's looking back on it now is kind of a, um, an interesting decision, but we invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into putting a a um, pelleting operation together, and when the recession hit in 2008, that came to an end because our source of wood fiber was no longer available. So we had this, this operation, and my wife suggested that we make fertilizer for, for plants. Now, that was, um, that was happening See, my wife always has something important to say. Well, because you see... You know, so, so we had this situation where the tomatoes had, had gotten the virus, and that led us to, to really think this is really the time to, to explore this more, more, more carefully. So, in uh, 2009, we became certified organic. And uh, I'd like to... I know that there's a lot of 
people, particularly in the farming community, that argue it's a controversial thing about certified organic. I'd just like to highlight and some of the things that you can see here. The market for um, certified organic produce is growing three times the rate. Even during the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010, organic produce grew at double digits, their market share. Well, not their market share, but their growth rate, 10% um, or more. It's now a $29 billion market, and becoming organic is not as expensive as many people think. And uh, it's also, I think the battery died on the, on the wireless mic. Okay, so the, the record keeping is difficult, but it's not as onerous as many people think it is. So when it comes to the benefit for the farmer, um, I'd just like to point this out here. This is from the USDA. The wholesale price premium for organic broccoli and carrots, there the price is, is essentially double in organic production at, from what it is with conventional. And that makes a, a significant difference for the for the farmer. And, um, but one of the big problems that I had with becoming certified organic was my concern about this right here. Foodborne illnesses. I had a great concern that if I became organic that if somehow my produce was contaminated and got into the marketplace and, uh, and what my liability personally would be. I'm really we have a great phobia for um, courts and, and uh, attorneys and things like that. So I didn't really want to have anything to do with that. And so that was initially my primary interest in veganic was to eliminate the foodborne illness risk. Then as I began to research it more, uh, I, I began to discover other things. But I'd like to point out that... E. coli, salmonella, wisteria, and etc. These the whole range of, of foodborne illnesses are essentially, by definition, fecal pathogens. That means they are essentially exclusively associated with with feces, and that's primarily animal. And I have to be careful because just because you're veganic doesn't mean there's no no risk. If people are not careful with their personal hygiene, you know, you can still have problems. But it is, it is essentially a, a problem of, of um, manure and other animal products. And you notice that uh, there are 76 million cases of foodborne disease in the United States each year. And it uh, causes 325,000 hospitalization and 5,000 deaths. So what is veganic growing? We decided to do that so that we would not use the animal products. And um, my daughter in her graphic design class in college uh, designed a logo for us, which I can't help but put up there, veganically grown. Now, as I began to research, as I said, I discovered that there were a lot of other things hidden in the animal products 
that I didn't know about. For example, uh, arsenic is mixed in the diet of about 70% of the broiler chickens. And uh, that actually comes out to be about 2 million pounds of arsenic is fed to the chickens. Poultry waste, primarily chicken, is the primary source of, of uh, nutrient that they put in the, in the organic fertilizers. If you go down to the big box stores and uh, you buy a container of organic fertilizer, if you read the ingredients, there's a pretty good chance, a majority chance, that that's going to be poultry-derived fertilizer. And uh, in there is uh, arsenic and very likely, not, ex not for sure, but very likely, and um, uh, arsenic is, uh, is certainly very deleterious. And the, there are other, in all forms of animal products, there are higher levels of heavy metals. It's just, it's just inherent, as you move up the food chain, toxins are going to be accumulated. There's no way around that. And um, you can see um, there are often frequent contaminants in fertilizers. If I told you some of the information that I have uncovered, um, and not from, not from conspiracy type sources, we're talking about the only places I go are essentially peer-reviewed science. And um, the, there are loopholes there are loopholes in the, in the systems out there that um, enable um, heavy metals to get into the food chain very readily. It, it, it really is a, is a much more problem than people are aware of it. But I want to focus, even though it's certainly not the only thing, I want to focus a lot on this part right here. 70% of all the antibiotics used in the United States um, are fed to animals primarily in the concentrated animal feeding operations, the CAFOs. And that's where most of your meat and dairy come from. This particular study there was a groundbreaking study from the University of Minnesota in 2005. And what they did is they said, you know, we're feeding the, we're feeding the uh, antibiotics to these animals. And um, where does it go from there? And nobody knew. So University of Minnesota did this study, and they took the manure that was being spread on the fields, and they, they actually grew products. In this case, it was cabbage and green onions and corn. And then they measured or tested the corn, cabbage, and green onions to see whether there was actually any antibiotic being taken up by the plant. And shock, it was. So even though you think you are buying a beautiful, healthy piece of fresh produce that should be good for you, hidden inside of there, without your knowledge of it, is um, very likely to be antibiotics. Now, I want to, um, um, I want to point out two particular problems with that. Number one, uh, we have the issue of uh, antibiotic resistance. Everybody's talking about that. And um, now more people are dying as the result of antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections than from AIDS or HIV or any of these other related things. Um, it's estimated that from 
from, um, particularly from Clostridium, that there are, as you can see here, 14,000 deaths a year that can be attributed to infections from that. Pretty, pretty serious. This is from, um, this is from the CDC. The United States antibiotic resistance adds $20 billion in excess health care costs and additional costs to society of $35 billion. The use of antibiotics is the single most important factor leading to antibiotic resistance. Now that's, um, that's data, right? But look at this, 28 million pounds of, of uh, antibiotics used, which is the equivalent of every man, woman, and child taking a prescription of azithromycin every two days. There's a lot of antibiotics being fed to animals. And that is creating a widespread issue of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus resistance, MRSA. But this is where it really starts getting interesting. Now, I'm going to bring this back around to, to the veganically grown issue, maybe in a way that might surprise you. But um, um, first off, I don't think it's fair or just for me as a farmer to be contributing to this unhealthy situation. I want to make sure that my customers who buy my food, that I'm giving them the best product that I possibly can. That they don't have to worry that hidden behind that beautiful green or red or whatever color skin that they see might be toxins that could be negatively affecting their health. And notice this. This right here was one of the, one of the clues or keys that have changed the way science is looking at human health. They believe that antibiotics, and this is from Environmental Health News, um, may have contributed to the explosive rise in asthma and allergies in children over the last 20 years. And you can find this in Scientific American. You can find it in, in many, many sources. It's becoming uh, widely accepted, actually. And um, um, this is from Scientific American recently. The inadvertent destruction of what? Beneficial microbes by the use of antibiotics may be leading to an increase in autoimmune disorders. Think rheumatoid arthritis, think MS, think a whole range of diseases, as well as obesity. And um, I can't, I can't um, avoid telling this particular story because um, this was ASU, Arizona State University, from my home state. And uh, 2012, they did a joint project with Johns Hopkins. And what they did is, in this whole problem that we're dealing with um, antibiotic resistance, there was a, a particular antibiotic that, that, that the um, health community had decided to keep as a last line of resistance against these infective bacteria that were resistant. And that was fluoroquinolone. And so they were noticing, so they abandoned its use to animal feed. So they noticed that resistance was beginning to crop up. So they began to question, 
are the farmers being honest and complying with the law and not using this product? And um, of course, they couldn't go to the farmers and ask them if they were using it or not, because if they were willing to break the law to use it, they'd be willing to say no that they did. So they decided to take feathers from chickens around the country and, uh, and see if it was present in the feathers, because if it was, that means that it was fed to the animal. So they sent out the... Um, they sent out the samples to the lab, and the lab came back and said, you know what, in that same test, we offer a panel of other tests as well. Not just fluoroquine alone, but we will let you test for a bunch of other things too, at no additional cost. Do you want that? And the researchers from Johns Hopkins and ASU said, sure, why not? So what they did is they found out that all the samples had between 2 and 10 antibiotics in the feathers. Okay? Eight of the 12 samples contained the banned antibiotic fluoroquinolone. But this is what's really interesting. It was so high that it was able to induce antibiotic resistance in tests and 10 of the 12 samples had caffeine. So they're asking the question, why is there caffeine in the chicken feathers? Well, the farmers are feeding caffeine to the chickens. Why would they be doing that? Well, because they needed the chickens to gain weight. And so they fed them caffeine in order to keep them awake so that they would eat more. Makes you ask the question if that's what happens to humans too. Of course, no study has looked at that that I know of. But um, with all that caffeine they were feeding, they discovered that there was also Tylenol, Benadryl. Now, why were they feeding Benadryl? Because they had to calm the chickens down from the jittery nerves that they were getting from, you know, they're pecking each other and, and so on and so forth. That's why they're feeding Tylenol and Benadryl. And notice that one. Prozac. They were having to feed the chickens antidepressants um, because, you know, you start with one thing and then you've got to kind of just keep adding. It's kind of what happens to humans as well. Start having to add a bunch of other things. So um, I, I've gotten, um, I've gotten a, um, a lot of thought over that particular study because I think it opens the question, what is in your food that you don't know? What, are, what is in there that, you know, we can focus on nutrient-dense food, and I think that's great, but what might be riding along with it if our nutrient program as farmers includes animal products like manures? That's a... Um, uh, you would not expect that there would be Prozac and Benadryl and Tylenol and caffeine and, and uh, you know, some of these other things in there as well. This is one of my favorite pictures of my number two granddaughter. Um, she was a very happy baby. She spent a lot of time, she lived in Arizona, and she spent a lot of time playing in the dirt. And um, Discover Magazine few years back ran a feature article 
is Dirt the New Prozac. And um, what they discovered is that there's a bacteria in soil, Mycobacterium vaccae, that has the same effect on the human brain as Prozac. Antidepressant, mood altering, mood improving um, substance. As a result of that, it, uh, it's very interesting and I don't have the time to go into it. But the reason that I'm putting this in here is because that is closely allied with the human microbiome. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the human microbiome, but recently we discovered, in fact, I think it was one of the science magazines actually came out with headlines, you are 90% bacteria and only 10% human. And that's because you have 10 times as many bacteria cells that are associated with you, intimately associated with your body as there are human cells. And initially, you know, the theory was for many, many years, ever since Louis Pasteur discovered the whole, the whole germ thing, we just associated, uh, we just assumed that they were there for the ride. And we assumed that the best thing you could do was to get rid of them and sterilize everything and use antibacterial soap and, and all kinds of things like that. And now we have discovered that that is absolutely not the fact. There is a huge impact. In fact, we have discovered that, I mean, I'll say scientists are, are just beginning to unlock the, the impact of the bacteria on your body. Notice this one here. It's established that our gut flora is essential in maintaining a strong immune system and protecting us against disease. We thought the bacteria was contributing to our disease, but we've now discovered that the bacteria, the good bacteria, uh, protect us against disease. But notice this, by looking at the bacteria in your gut, they can determine with 90% accuracy whether the individual is obese or lean. Now you think about the ramifications of that, okay? By looking at the bacteria that are in your intestine, they can tell by the composition of those and the number of them whether you are fat or skinny. And the question is, why? Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. Gut bacteria directly stimulate afferent neurons of the enteric nervous system to send signals to the brain via the nervous system. In other words, bacteria are communicating directly with your brain. Through these varied mechanisms, gut microbes shape the architecture of what? Sleep. So, have you noticed that insomnia is becoming a much bigger problem today? You know, obesity is becoming a bigger problem. Autoimmune disorders are becoming a bigger problem. When I was a kid, um, I knew of only one person in my entire growing up years who had asthma. I never met anybody that, that had an allergy. 
and today it's like everybody's got either an allergy or asthma or something. And um, so we're beginning to zero in on the possibility that a big factor involved in that is the composition of the human microbiome. That is the, that is the bacterial um, ecosystem that's a, that's a part of you. They influence memory, mood, cognition, that's your thinking processes, and are clinically and therapeutically relevant to a range of disorders, including alcoholism, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and restless leg syndrome, and I cut the article off there because it continued on. But you notice it affects your thinking, it affects addictions, like, and... Uh, we saw that it is associated with obesity and things like that. Now, one of the things that is really um, interesting, in animal studies, they have found that by changing the bacteria in the gut of animals, they can affect their risk-taking ability. So you can take a, a, a mouse, for example, and, and grow it in a sterile environment and then introduce one type of bacteria and you'll get the mouse doing things that a mouse would consider absolutely crazy. Now I want, I want to dwell on this for just a moment because I know we don't have much time. Has anybody noticed that young people today are participating in high-risk behaviors? Why would somebody do some of the extreme sports, they call it, uh, the, some of the risky things that people do. I mean, of course, I'm old, so I say, why would, I, why would you want to do something risky? Well, when I was young, maybe I did. But, but I want to bring this around to something really, really important. And that is, at the end of time, Revelation 14 tells us that every human being, without exception, God is going to ensure that every human being comes to a point where they are going to decide personally, individually, and intentionally whether to be saved or lost. Revelation 14, the third angel's message says that, that every person is going to hear this message that if they receive the mark of the beast, they are going to what? Drink, drink of the wine of the wrath of God's, anyway, God's displeasure, and you're going to receive the plagues and so on. Now, if you choose to do that, that is a high-risk activity. Choosing to receive the mark of the beast with an intelligent, intentional, and clear understanding of the consequences, being willing to do that, is risky. And I think that there is an intentional, part, intentional action on the part of the devil to so alter the human organism that we are going to be willing to engage in high-risk activities. And we are discovering that what we eat doesn't just affect our health through the simplistic mechanisms that we've been believing for decades, but what we eat is changing the composition of our gut bacteria, 
which communicate with the human brain and consequently result in many different things happening, including your ability to think clearly, including your ability to engage in high-risk activities. Now, um, this one here, uh, researchers from the University of California, Arizona State University, and the University of New Mexico found that the microbes living in our digestive tracts cause us to crave the particular nutrients they need to grow on rather than passively living off whatever we happen to consume. In other words, this was in specific to sugar cravings. You crave sugar not because you like the taste of sugar, but because your microbes in your gut need sugar and they stimulate the, the nervous system of you to, to feel like you crave sugar because they need it. Um, and then it says, while the exact mechanism is still unknown, they believe that they signal that. Now, uh, this goes on and, and uh, explains that more fully. But I would like to, I'd like to um, wrap that back around to the whole veganically grown thing by bringing these several pieces together, connecting the dots, okay? Antibiotics, by definition, are bacteria-killing chemicals. Sublethal doses of antibiotics will change the composition of your gut bacteria. And I have studies that I didn't have time to put up there to show that. So you eat food that contains antibiotics and you are going to have a different composition of bacteria in your gut. Now we just looked at several of the ramifications of that. Obesity, autoimmune disorders, asthma, allergies, etc., as well as changes to your thinking and changes to your cravings and changes to your risk-taking levels. So to me, this is not just interesting. This is really important to particularly to Seventh-day Adventists who understand what time in Earth's history we're living in. And so you say, you know what, if I am using substances in my farming practices, if I'm introducing, um, and, and just as a side note there, glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is patented recently as an antibiotic. It is effective as an antibiotic at 100 parts per million. The USDA allows levels two or three times that in the food, and the, the uh, tests that they've done show levels several times what is allowed in the food that you eat. Yes? Glyphosate. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, the herbicide Roundup. Okay? So one of the things that we didn't know until very recently is that many crops that are not Roundup ready and that they actually apply that too for weed control, they actually spray with Roundup in order to desiccate the crop so that it can be ready to harvest. Much of your wheat 
and other small grains and legumes, beans, lentils, garbanzos, etc., are often sprayed, especially in northern climates, with glyphosate in order to speed the drying of the crop so they can harvest it and get it off the field before the fall rains come. So there are reasons to be consuming organic food. There are reasons to be consuming veganically grown food to make sure that you are not using um, these, these um, or not getting these, these uh, unwanted toxins in there. Now I've only looked at a, at a yes, I did, I did mention that, but since my wife brought that up again, I'll reinforce the fact that uh, the cheapest and most plentiful fertilizers on the market are, um, are often poultry base, and, uh, and, and any of them are, are in the same boat. But, uh, so just watch out for that. You can be thinking that you are growing your own healthy food yourself, and you have a Trojan horse. You know, you're bringing the enemy in through the gate in this, in this thing that you're worshiping, your own homegrown food. So make sure that you know what you're putting on your food. I'd like to, I'd like to um, kind of cover um, the question, the elephant in the room, can you successfully grow veganically and get good results? And I would like to just look at nature. If you go into these beautiful rainforests um, and you look here, this is a, a, lot, a picture I took from in a forest in Michigan. Uh, the color's not very good because of the projector, but the, you, you'll see anywhere there's a rainforest, you'll see uh, lush undergrowth coming up every year. What is it growing on? In nature, the roots First of the trees, and then of course the annual plants, they go down into the soil and trees go down many feet and they bring up the minerals that the, um, that the cycle of water has, has leached down deeply and they put it into the leaves along with the carbon that comes from the um, photosynthesis process and at the end of the year those leaves fall down and form a, a um, bed of rich organic matter at the surface of the soil. Microbes break that down and there are free living, many free living nitrifying bacteria and if there's enough organic matter they are able to produce nitrogen without being associated with legumes. And um, that's what happens in nature. You don't see truckloads of uh, chemical fertilizers or, or manures being put out in the forest and yet you see um, an abundance of, of uh, fertility. So what we started doing is uh, using that mill that we had, but you don't have to. We can, you can use alfalfa pellets that you buy as long as you make sure that you know what's in it. Um, we started uh, processing, we started by, by uh, pelletizing our waste tomato leaves and that's kind of what got us into it and as we began to research it more so we put that on there and it breaks down from the irrigation that we apply and um, you can see there's a crop of tomatoes we get um, we get terrific growth yes that's a good question the question is how's the alfalfa grown is it organic 
The National Organic Program does not require us to use organic, organic feedstocks, which is one of the reasons, of course, why the whole manure thing can be a problem, even on organic farms. But, but we check with our sources of alfalfa to make sure that the, that the uh, alfalfa is non-GMO and they don't spray alfalfa with much. Um, by the time, the only time they spray alfalfa is at the first when they're getting it established and that's before they cut it. So by the time it gets into the, um, by the time it gets into regular production, they don't need to, to spray it. Yes. It is usually not. They released here, well, it's been a controversy for several years, but they finally released it in the last two years, uh, a, a GMO version of alfalfa, but it has not taken off at this point excessively, very limited usage, particularly in California, where, uh, and that's because the seed is so expensive, and I hope they keep it that way. If you are a farmer, you have to check with your organic certifier with everything you put on. So some organic certifying agencies do not allow non-organic alfalfa. Ours, ours does allow that. And our, yeah, and, and we use, um, use other things as well. Uh, another picture of, of our tomato crop. And uh, just um, before I say anything more about that, which is a little bit off the veganic topic, are there any other questions about um, the whole things that I've said about veganically grown? Yes. We could grow tomatoes right away. We just couldn't grow heirloom tomatoes. So what we did, um, actually, um, it's a little known fact and that's because we developed it, we figured out a way to organically treat um, the um, tomato mosaic virus and cure it. And uh, we've used it to treat other viruses, plant viruses as well successfully. So um, we are now growing heirloom tomatoes again, but before then we, um, we had to stop for several years growing the heirloom varieties. Yes. Not on camera. Um, yeah, but I'd be happy to share with you uh, after, the, after the meeting. I'd be happy to. It's totally legitimate. I just don't want to. Uh, uh, it's proprietary, so I don't want to just get it all over the place. But um, we've had good success in uh, more than one place as well. So the, any other questions? These are uh, tomatoes on the vine, cluster tomatoes. Uh, the variety of this one is probably, uh, might be succession. That's uh, one of the main varieties that I grow. I'm not sure, that one actually looks more like Clarence from De Reuter. But anyway, that probably doesn't make any difference. Uh, that particular variety, by the looks of it, I think it's probably a variety they call Clarence. It's from uh, De Reuter seeds. Uh, but that's not one that you're gonna be able to find very readily because the tomato, Varieties that are grown in, in hot for hothouse production are all European varieties generally, and the seed is very expensive, like anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar a seed, and so it's not generally available to the to home gardeners because most people aren't interested in paying that. You can find them online, but but it's uh, it is very expensive seed. Yes. Um, what we what we grow in is um, composted pecan shell. Composted pecan shell, 
We have a lot of pecans, and I really am very fond of the physical properties of pecan shell. It, um, it stays, it keeps its physical structure from, for several years as opposed to other organic substrates like wood-based things, for example, that, that break down fairly quickly. Yeah, then we have, we have the uh, soil underneath it. And um, um, any other questions? Okay, the, um, yes? That right there is a lot of weight on the plants. Yes. How do you secure that? We have a, uh, a wire cable that's at about the 12 foot, 14 foot level. And you can see here, there's a string and there's a specially made wire hook that, that holds onto that wire that you can still move freely that, uh, that holds it. You can wind that up on it, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, it's a very efficient method of doing it, but there's a lot of weight and regularly we have wires break during the times of year when the, when the load on the plants gets high. Um, unfortunately. Yes, that's a very good question. Question is, are there any types that you can save the seed that you grow in, uh, in high tunnels, I mean in, in hothouse? And um, um, when I was taking ag in college, they made it very clear to us that you can't save hybrid seed because F1, first generation, hybrid seed will not breed true when you take the seed. So that's why there's a big interest in open pollinated varieties. Now, hybrid, hybridization is not a particularly, um, it's not particularly rocket science. All they're doing is controlling the parent lines. That's all it is. Hybridization happens in nature every day. It's just you don't know what, what parent line it was. In hybrids, they control the parent line. And so they take parent A and join it with parent B and the, and the offspring is parent C. With these expensive seeds, the reason they can charge that and the reason they do charge that is because they have, they have bred for a very wide range of plant characterization, uh, characteristics. For example, on the tomato, this part right here is called the calyx, okay? On tomatoes on the vine, that calyx needs to be as, as thick as possible so that when you, when you harvest that, you're, you're cutting off the whole, this whole cluster of tomatoes, this whole cluster of tomatoes, you're cutting it off there and you're sending it to the store that way. And it gives the consumer the impression that it's a fresher tomato. But in order to have that impression, that calyx has to stay green. For it to stay green, it needs to be thick so that it doesn't dry out very quickly. So they breed for that. They breed for the angle of the leaf on the plant. They breed for the shape of the truss, the way the, the, um, the, way the fruit sit on it. They breed for so many things. So in order to get those many, many characteristics there, they have to have very clean parent lines. Because of those very clean parent lines, guess what? When you take and save the seed from that, it breeds pretty true because they've got clean parent lines. It's not because it's hybridized 
are not hybridized, it's because of how they've bred the parent lines. And so we use almost exclusively save seeds for our crops. Yes? Yeah, we, we try to keep at least four clusters exposed. Uh, in the summertime, we let more leaves stay on because we're trying to keep the crop as cool as possible. In the, um, in the wintertime, we try to expose it more to get more uniform ripening and to reduce incident of botrytis and other, other fungal diseases. So the plants are, are generally 10 to 12 feet tall, so it looks like there's a lot exposed, but um, if you were to see the entire plant, there's a lot of leaves there still. Yes? How far do I plant them apart? Um, I'll put it this way. We have our rows six feet on center, and we train them into two, into two, onto two wires okay, to create a wider row. We are targeting about 3.3 square feet per plant in the conditions that we have. So that's three heads or three plants per square meter, so about 3.3 square feet per plant. And so you can, you can adjust it. Our rows are six feet wide, and so that means that they're going to be, um, we put our plants at about um, eight, 10 inches, 10 inches apart, something like that in there. Okay, um, I think that we're, we, we grow, we grow um, a wide range of things. I just will show you here. This is our farm box program. These are some of the things that we grow. Um, this is some of the produce we just took a picture of here that we grow veganically, and um, we get fantastic results. Great-looking produce, healthy produce, uh, high-yielding produce, growing it veganically. In fact, one of the big problems that we have, believe it or not, is that is that uh, we started having some problems with our crop and uh, so I sent off uh, soil tests and uh, the nutrient levels are so high in the soil that it's beginning to cause us problems. So we've had to cut back on, on our fertility program. Uh, so there's, um, there are many benefits many benefits and um, I think that if people use it, they'd be happy. Yes. Well, we were having, we were having high EC problems, okay? EC, that means the salt levels are getting so high in the soil because of fertility. And so we had to, um, we had to cut back on, on our, uh, our fertility. Yes. We make, we, we have tried a number of different things, peanut meal, um, beans, uh, tomato leaves, and um, alfalfa, and um, we have found that as long as it's a plant, in fact, I wish that I had time to, to explain some of that to people who were interested in knowing it, but most, when I, when I was at, at Cal State, uh, I, I actually came across a book that had, it was one of these things, I mean, somebody was a real mad scientist. I mean, they went through and took and did tissue samples on about every plant that they could find. And I mean, they didn't just do your, your basic ag chemicals. They went and looked at gold and silver and strontium and, and every one of the elements on the chart and put them in this book. And what I discovered that was interesting is that most plants have a very similar nutrient profile. 
you know, very similar levels of nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, calcium, manganese, boron, etc. Very similar. So when you feed plants to plants, that's the way God designed it. And so you actually have um, generally a fairly balanced nutrient profile as long as you are feeding plants to plants. Well, you can use grass clippings, um, you know, bury your compost in strips in your garden and uh, then breaks down over the next several months and the next year you plant there and you've got a lot of nutrients that you've put in there. There's a, there's a lot of things you can do, yes. If you were at the meeting that I was at this morning, we grow very intensively. Um, in, uh, and I'll maintain my numbers, it's two and a half acres and we're getting a half million pounds of product off of two and a half acres. In, in a year, okay? And I think it's actually probably higher than that. But we, we, push, the, we push the nutrition in order to get, to get um, you know, we're, we're going six crops a year on, on many things. We're just, just bang, bang, bang. And yes, we do rotate and so on, like I said this morning. But because of that, I was more worried than I should have been that we would run out of nutrients because we're pushing it. So, um, you know, it's not that hard to gauge, especially if you do a tissue test and soil test and stuff like that. It's not that hard to gauge. Um, and uh, periodically, um, you know, some good uh, irrigation that flushes out whatever might be accumulating in there is probably a good thing to do. Yeah, just flush it out. Goes in there and then the deep-rooted plants are going to pull them back up and put them into new leaves. All right, well, with that, I've, uh, I've gone, I think, a few minutes beyond what I was supposed to. But thank you again, and uh, God bless your gardening efforts. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.